Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction in the markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Sanzel, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investment. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Something for everyone in the August jobs report with the top line beating estimates, but the unemployment rate ticking higher and European inflation hits a record high. This is Wall Street Week. This week, Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers on the jobs report. People have a tendency to exaggerate how much favorable participation contributes to necessary disinflation. And Jessica Caldwell of Edmonds on the future of the electric vehicle market. It finally feels like now we're kind of on the cusp of something big. So I think the question here is, are consumers ready to pony up to spend the money? Markets began the week jittery following Fed Chair Powell's hawkish tilt from Friday, with Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari hammering the point home. I was actually happy to see how Chair Powell's Jackson Hole speech was received. You know, people now understand the seriousness of our commitment to getting inflation back down to 2%. Inflation in Europe rocketed to yet another all-time high, reaching 9.1% year over year, as the bloc's central bank weighs whether to go with a jumbo rate hike of 75 basis points. But economists are also being swayed because of all this hawkish commentary we've had out of the ECB. You've had six members of the governing council now saying that 
a move bigger than a half point needs to be at least considered. Plus, natural gas prices in Europe continue to fall throughout the week, even as Russia's Gazprom shut off the spigots to Germany's Nord Stream pipeline. Three days of maintenance. I, I put quote marks around that because some people doubt the motives behind that. I'm Caroline Hyde, alongside Matt Miller. Let us shape up the week for you, the week that was on Wall Street. S&P 500, five days, we're in the red, to the tune of almost well, 3.5%. This is the third straight week of losses. This is the worst week we've had since mid-June. Two-year yield, almost in a round trip. Look, we're basically flat on the week, but what a movement, intra-week volatility that we had. Yields rise, we think that we have a hawkish Fed on our hands. They pull back when we get a really rather Goldilocks scenario with the jobs data. And Matt, the VIX, it creeps a little high, but look, 25 is above the annual average. Yeah, I think the VIX doesn't really do much. So um, I'm not convinced that we're really headed down hard yet. The market doesn't really believe that the Fed can go ahead with rate hike after rate hike after rate hike. They're a little more convinced after Jackson Hole, mm -hmm. but this jobs number, you were talking about this earlier today, um, we saw what looked like maybe a little stabilization in terms of average hourly earnings, and we saw the participation rate climb. So, you know, that's uh, putting in a couple more question marks over the Fed's commitment to raise rates. Soft landing, can they do it? Let's ask our guests. We're pleased to welcome to the show Ellen Lee, Director and Fundamental Portfolio Manager for Causeway Capital, Sanal Desai, Chief Investment Officer, Franklin Templeton, Fixed Income. It is wonderful to have you both here as we look towards a long weekend, a long weekend where it felt that money managers took risk off the table. Ellen, start first and foremost with us, your interpretation of the jobs number and where that leaves the Federal Reserve. You know, people are looking at the number very carefully to see if what Feds are doing is working, to see if this, what actions have taken are loosening the labor market. It doesn't, it, there's incremental signs, but nothing for sure. And I think there is also some confusion in the market thinking that, you know, only from the unemployment numbers, we will see a, a slowdown be more market. But in a high inflationary era, it is common that labor market stays tight before the shoe really drops. So I know this is a number that the Fed is concerned about, but we have way more to go before unemployment is threatening where Fed has to reverse course. We had, you know, in the last trading day of the week, a big turnaround, as Caroline points out. Of course, a lot of asset managers are going to take risk off the table as they go into a Labor Day weekend. You don't want to be sitting on the beach worried about your portfolio. Chanel Desai, you have a big portfolio to worry about. Is that what you guys have done at the end of the week? Do you see um, portfolio managers typically doing that? I'd actually take it back to what you started, uh, started discussing. The Fed lacks credibility. Markets don't believe that the Fed is going to do what the Fed keeps saying it's going to do. That's a problem for the Fed, and it's also a problem for markets. So we, in our portfolios, have actually, we, we started taking risk off sometime before this long weekend. We don't think that long weekend in and of itself makes a major difference. I couldn't agree more with Ellen. This is one data point. The bottom line is I'm going to be looking very carefully at the Fed's new SEPs to see if we get some more realistic SEPs after the March and June, num uh, June yeah. projections, which I didn't think were internally consistent at all. 
Snob, I, I want to dig in yeah. there for a moment, Snob, because you're saying they lack credibility. You are a bond money manager, first and foremost, fixed yeah. income. It felt as though the bond market sort of had interpreted the Federal Reserve along the right tracks prior to Jackson Hole. They didn't expect to pivot in quite the same way that the equity market did. Why do you think, therefore, credibility has been so hard to come about? sure I fully agree with you because we were at 347 the type of volatility we've seen in the bond market on every single uh, data point to me indicates that the bond market also fully anticipates that the Fed is going to do what it's done for the better part of a couple of decades now which is as soon as the market gets wobbly the Fed blinks and it reverses course it happened in 2018 people keep anticipating that the, the Fed's first and foremost view, the first target, the only target, is unemployment and growth. When we've got inflation at 8.5% and we have employment significantly lower than current Nairu, it seems remarkable. We're going to have much more with Shnal Desai and Ellen Lee. Ellen's going to give us some individual company names to talk about after we take a break. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. But this week, the conventional media 
began to catch up. After all, it was hard totally to ignore such additional developments as the slowest rate of manufacturing growth in 13 months, the first outright decline in construction spending in seven months, falling prices for raw materials to the lowest level since September, the biggest monthly tumble in factory orders in almost a decade, a rising unemployment rate, and the first monthly decline in private sector jobs in more than four years. You think maybe the economy really is a hair less vibrant these days? This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm Matt Miller alongside Caroline Hyde. That clip of Louis Rukeyser from June 2nd, 2000, when Santana's Maria Maria was at the top of the charts and Mission Impossible 2 was the number one movie of the land. There were similarities between the economy then and now. The unemployment rate ticked up, but back then it was all the way to 4% compared to this month's 3.7%. And people were starting to really think about what was going on in the economy rather than at the individual company level. Ellen Lee joins us right now with Chanel Decide. They're back with us to continue this conversation. Ellen, I wanted to touch on this because it seems like the whole world's gone macro. Everybody wants to talk about the unemployment rate and the Fed, um, inflation. How does that strike you as, as a fundamental research analyst? I, I can't ignore what's happening in the world, obviously, because it's the backdrop for the environment in which companies operate. But at Causeway, we're looking for bottom-up you know, investment ideas. And there are a couple that I really like in this environment. You know, Phillips and Alstom both are restructuring stories, trading at 10 times. I think in the current environment where interest rates are going up, I think that's a good tailwind for value stocks. But more importantly, they have more have their fate and their control of where the management can lead them out of the situation they're in. And of course, macro environment being challenging, we believe is all reflected in their valuation. Philips, Alstom, both being European companies. And Philips, we know for, well, you might use them for your toothbrush, for example. So now, you're, you're a global perspective here. It, we look towards mm. next week. We look towards the European Central Bank. It, Fed is not the only central bank having to fight inflation here. It's certainly not. And really, the PBOC is the only one who doesn't. Are your perspective on whether Europe is in a place to be investing at the moment? I think you're right. in a very long line. Sorry. Because... Sorry, one moment, Ellen. I just, just to Sanal yeah. for a second. Oh, sorry, sorry. I, I, didn't, I, I didn't hear that. So I was just going to say that uh, Europe's in a very different position yeah, but relative to the U.S. I would say that uh, it's interesting that inflation is almost as, you know, is, is very similarly high in Europe as it is in the U.S. when it comes from completely different fundamental characteristics. You had energy prices go up six. Uh, I think energy prices in Europe... Gas prices, for example, went up there six, seven, ten times more yeah. than they went up here in the U.S. So, yes, you've got inflation, but it's very different. The drivers are different. The demand side for Europe is significantly different than the demand side we had here in the U.S. This is and why so, I think this is why I think Ellen's call for Phillips and Alstom is so interesting. I mean. Um, the Russians said late on Friday that they are not going to reopen the spigots in terms of Nord Stream 1. Caroline was uh, anchoring the close on Bloomberg, and all of a sudden the markets turned around bigly. Ellen, why would you want two industrials in Europe at a time when they can't even count on energy bills to stay as low as 10 times as high as what we pay in the U.S.? 
because you have to look at the price on the screen. These stocks are down more than 50%, and they're reflecting this challenging operating environment. But mind you, you know, this gas crisis, right now this winter, it's going to be difficult. Actually, people are thinking about a more difficult winter the year after. But the reality is things are in motion where this is going to be resolved. And guess what? In the long term, everybody's going off Russian gas. Mm. I mean, Sonal, this is your uh, sweet spot. We all know, of course, the Franklin Templetons of this world for emerging market expertise, but also global expertise. And therefore, are there any emerging markets at this moment that look in any way attractive when you've got the U.S. dollar, as it did this week, hitting a new record high? So I think that you've got to look at uh, different elements, whether you're looking at local currency, whether you're looking at hard currency, certainly uh, in our emerging market debt opportunities fund, we continue to find opportunities in the hard currency space in particular. I would note, though, that as these valuations get more attractive, there is a tendency to throw everything out. And there are many emerging markets which continue to have very solid policies, number one. Number two, when you have energy crises the way we currently have, unsurprisingly, you still have a large number of emerging markets, not not just Russia, <laughs> many other emerging markets, which actually stand to benefit from high energy prices. By the way, Chanel, Ellen makes a, an interesting point, which I want to get your take on. This winter is going to be hard. Next winter could be worse, right? We've yeah. seen forecasts for inflation in the UK, for example, of over 22% from reputable investment banks. I mean, how quickly do the central banks want to get a handle on inflation? Because if they want to do it quickly, they're going to have to come down hard, like Paul Volcker hard, on labor markets. And that's going to cause widespread pain and maybe civil unrest. And it's going to be politically maybe untenable. So it's going to be really hard. There's no easy way to put this. I don't think those massive double-digit uh, inflation rates are necessarily going to happen in all of Europe, and that's a different issue. The UK, in many respects, always seems to have some more tailwinds on inflation than the rest, than the rest of Europe does, though all of it is very high. The problem is that if you let that high inflation continue, mm -hmm. inevitably, it starts getting built into expectations, wage expectations, and it just gets harder the longer you wait. Yeah. So it's not clear to me that uh, central banks have much of an option, right? They don't have an easy way out. And yes, it's going to be extremely painful. And actually, I think that Andrew I Bailey. Mean, monetary policy was way too easy for way too long. And it feels <laughs> and like Andrew Bailey called policy. that a little bit at the UK, and he started talking tough perhaps before, before the market had anticipated. What about Christine Lagarde then for Ellen? What about next week? What about 75 basis points? I mean, I think, you know, overall inflation is high, so the central banks need to do what they need to do. But again, I would agree with Sanal. The energy crisis is at the sort of center of inflation. And because of that, we see governments in Germany, France, and UK discussing and thinking about how they can manage power prices because they can change the structure of the market to ensure that this can be more contained. And I think there's more news to come. And I think this is why when the pipeline shut down, actually gas prices fell. Ellen, Lee, Sonal Desai, wonderful to have time with you. We want to thank you both for joining us on Wall Street Week. And of course, coming up, we're going to have so much more of a global perspective for you. It is global Wall Street. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. I'm Matt Miller. California has taken a big step forward in the electric car revolution, banning the sale of internal combustion engine vehicles in the state by 2035. So what do investors need to know about how this will affect the industry? For more, let's go to Jessica Caldwell. She is executive director for Insights with Edmonds. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Um, let, let's first talk about the state of the market. I mean, we have been seeing so many Teslas on the road, certainly where you are, for years and years, and everyone's talking about the new Ford Lightning, as well as a number of other startup electric car companies like Lucid, for example. But how much of the market really is electric right now? Across the United States, it's not a big percentage. If you look at battery EV cells this year, they're around 5% of pure EVs. So not a big percentage. And this is a technology we've been talking about for over a decade, we've seen these cars. But it finally feels like now we're kind of on the cusp of something big. We don't know exactly what the effect of that is yet, but it definitely feels like the products are finally coming. So I think the question here is, are consumers ready to pony up and spend the money? We know the past few years have been quite difficult in that regard. And to kind of see if the infrastructure will support increased sales. But if we look at the market as it is, it's still a very small percentage of total new vehicle sales. In terms of spending the money, we've started to see price increases, right? Ford is raising prices for the Mach-E. It's already raised prices um, for the Lightning and not unsubstantial amounts. We're talking about three, four seven eight thousand dollar price increases these vehicles i think uh, at least the smaller ones were affordable before but the bigger ones like the trucks can get up to a hundred thousand dollars are they making any margin on those yes i mean i think that's what it's all about really i mean there's been so much demand for these vehicles this year i mean i don't even think you can get on a reservation list right now for a lightning so if you really want one it's 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 pretty hard out there so i think they're probably responding to the demand that they see. I mean, we've seen a lot of price increases also for Tesla products over the course of the past year and just the market in general. I mean, if we look at new vehicle prices, they really have skyrocketed. I mean, the average new vehicle is about $47,000 right now, which feels much higher than it ever has been historically. And new EVs are over $60,000. So it is not a, a cheap game to, to buy a new vehicle, uh, particularly an EV. Fortunately for now, you get $7,500 back from Uncle Sam, and a lot of uh, local markets also give you some sort of tax rebate. How long is that going to last? I mean, I've heard that um, starting next year, you're going to have to buy cars that are made in America in order to get that, and that you're going to have to buy cars that have battery components also made in America. Yes, next year is where it starts to get really tricky because not only are there requirements for the vehicles themselves and their components like their battery, um, the battery elements, as well as where the vehicle is assembled, there's also requirements on income levels. So if you're someone that is, you know, you're a married couple and you make over $300,000, which may seem like a lot of money, but if you think about these vehicles are $100,000, it's it, it really isn't. You're not going to be eligible for those rebates, which is you know a bit difficult. And the same thing for the used vehicles. So that's what's interesting and new is that in uh, we're going to start seeing used rebates for EVs about $4,000 again 
income requirements. So all of a sudden this, this market, which didn't really have too many rules in terms of the rebates, is going to get really strict and it's going to be pretty hard to figure out if your vehicle qualifies. Um, there's going to have to be VIN decoders to figure out if your vehicle has the battery, the battery components and the vehicles. Automakers have a few years to ramp up to get these things set in place. Obviously, this cannot change overnight, but it's still going to be a tough challenge for them as well as consumers. Yeah, because as of right now, none of the electric vehicles comply with the new regulations in terms of, you know, the raw materials um, coming from the U.S. or the batteries being built in the U.S., um, they're going to have to change that. Are they, do you think, those companies building car, car, electric cars in the U.S., like GM, like Ford, like BMW, are they going to have to revamp the way they source these materials? Yes, a lot of the companies, there's a lot of pressure on them to revamp the where, where they source these materials. I mean, we know that there's a lot of factories being built as we speak, or vac factories, of building factories very soon. So that's definitely something that's in play. But in terms of sourcing some of these minerals, um, the mining that goes into it, that's a, a little bit different. That's something that takes, from what I understand, a very long period of time. You can't just change that overnight. I mean, none of these things you can really change overnight, but that is even more sensitive to, to time. So yes, in terms of where they get these natural resources, they're going to have to put a lot more effort into it, which is tough. I mean, it's not they don't have to be 100% next year. There is a time frame associated with it. It's like 40%, 60%, 100% eventually. So they do have a bit of a time window. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Jessica Caldwell there from Edmonds talking to us about the race to win um, the electric car crown. Coming up, we wrap up the week with former U.S. Treasury Secretary and Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers. That's next on Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. 
they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome back to Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Caroline Hyde, and we are thrilled, as always, as we do each week, to welcome our Wall Street Week special contributor, Harvard's Larry Summers. Of course, Larry, your reaction first and foremost with the jobs number, with actually a tick higher in participation, a steadying perhaps in terms of wage inflation. What do you make of the numbers? I think these numbers were relatively close to what we expected. I doubt anyone's going to change their view uh, radically on this. I think the increases in participation are good news, but I think there's a tendency to exaggerate how much higher participation will reduce inflation because people think of it as extra labor supply, but they forget that if the unemployment rate stays the same and participation goes up, more people are working, earning, and therefore spending, and that in turn raises the demand uh, for labor. So I think this is a positive development for the economy, more people working, more GDP, but people have a tendency to exaggerate how much favorable participation contributes to uh, necessary disinflation. It doesn't the Fed, Larry, have to push people out of jobs? I mean, right now, everyone is earning money and able to pay up as much as they need to for goods and services. But um, in order to bring inflation down, they're going to need unemployment at four and a half, five, five and a half percent. I don't know what Nehru is right now, but maybe you have a view. Is that going to bring a political backlash? Uh, Matt, my guess is that uh, things are much less good than the Fed has uh, supposed. Uh, my estimate would be that the Nehru is now near 5%. I don't see how you can fail to think that the Nehru has risen substantially when you look at how much there's been an increase in vacancies at a given unemployment rate, what economists call the beverage curve, when you look at the big increases in quit rates uh, that we've seen, when you look at uh, wage uh, behavior. And I add all that up and I see a uh, difficult situation where I think that to start bringing down inflation, we're going to need to get wage, we're going to need to get above the Nehru. That's probably somewhere in the 5% uh, range. And I think we do have to achieve some meaningful amount of disinflation. So I've said that I'd be surprised if we get to the 6%, get to the 2% inflation target without an unemployment rate uh, that approaches or exceeds uh, 6%. And I've said it before, I think the Fed's most recent judgment that they're going to get back to target with an unemployment rate that stays at 4.1% is certainly a possible outcome. But how that could be regarded as a most probable uh, outcome, I can't really understand. I think that's the quite optimistic case, nothing like uh, the most reasonable case. And I think that the 
preponderant probability is that the combination of 4% unemployment and 2% inflation, a misery index, 4 plus 2 of 6, that the Fed foresees will be a substantial underestimate of where we'll be one year and two years from now. And to that end, therefore, Larry, when you looked at the JOLTS data, because it hasn't just been, of course, the non-farm payrolls, there's been a sprinkling of other data, whether we look at the new numbers coming from ADP, of course, whether it's the jobless claims that looked hot, you felt that really a soft landing was very hard to achieve. To that point, the market now thinking potentially a soft landing is achievable, you still think, no, not, not necessarily here. I don't think that we've seen a soft landing means disinflation with a strong economy. Evidence that we're having a strong economy without substantial disinflation doesn't really speak to the likelihood of a soft landing. So my view that a soft landing represents the triumph of hope over experience is not one that I'm changing uh, yet. It certainly could happen. But I think that one has to think in terms of preponderant probabilities, and uh, that's not the preponderant probability. Larry, I want to bring up um, the passing of Mikhail Gorbachev. You uh, served on the Council of Economic Advisors in Ronald Reagan's White House when, when those two made history together and really changed the trajectory of globalization, right? The fall of the Berlin Wall, the fall of the Soviet Union um, really brought the world closer together. Now Vladimir Putin um, is taking it in the other direction as Gorbachev dies. What are your thoughts on uh, the situation with Russia as it stands? And, and the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev. I think in a quite extraordinary way, Mikhail Gorbachev will be remembered as a great historic figure for presiding over a great historic uh, surrender and letting that process play out without a massive loss of life. And I think that is in its way, not the achievement he set out to achieve, but is in its way a uh, very substantial achievement. Look, I think we're at a time when globalization is getting a bad name. Uh, if you ask what the era of globalization has meant in terms of the quality of life for people around the world, in terms of the having of the share of children on our planet who die before the age of five, the doubling of the fraction of kids who learn uh, to read, the fact that for all our problems, the incidence of violent conflict on our planet is much lower than it was in the 1970s or uh, 1980s. The extraordinary change in human potential represented by the fact that there are now more smartphones on Earth than there are adults. And so the majority of the world's people can reach out uh, to all of the world's uh, other people. I think these are fantastic things. And yes, this is under attack. It is under attack from uh, Russia. It is under attack in important respects from an axis of authoritarians connecting Russia and China and Iran. And it is going to be the great struggle of our time to maintain 
maintain the rule of law, to maintain openness, to maintain an a world of opportunity for as many people as possible. Yeah. But I think it's very much the wrong way to pursue a strategy of resisting uh, international connection rather than a strategy of better managing uh, international connection. I think there's nothing in history to suggest that a world of nations that isolate themselves is going to be an ultimately peaceful or prosperous or very attractive uh, world. Larry, thanks so much for joining us. Wall Street Week special contributor, of course, former Treasury Secretary and Harvard head Larry Summers there talking to us. Finally, one more thought. Of course, we are about to experience Labor Day. What happens after Labor Day is everyone goes back to laboring. And in fact, Matt, they're going back to laboring perhaps in the office a little bit more. Yeah, a lot of them. Goldman Sachs, right? Morgan Stanley came out with notes, uh, memos to employees saying, hey, you know what? It's really time to come back. And don't worry about being vaccinated or taking a test. Just get back to the office, which I completely understand because if you're one of these banks' clients, you want them to be at work, right? You don't want them taking Labor Day are you off. Are trying to say that people are not productive when they're working at home? I'm not saying that, although um, I guess you could be doubtful if you're a client and you want to get your money's worth. You don't care as much if you're paying for their services about their work-life balance, right? What about lawyers, though? Done. I feel like, isn't it more the lawyers who are t charging you for every five minutes, ten minutes, who should be, therefore, seeing uh, their seats yeah. executives I mean, pull them back? What did Shakespeare say? Um, the first thing we do is kill all the lawyers. I think that's <laughs> quite a different story than the bankers, but... I um, love you, lawyers. I definitely understand uh, why these banks want their people back, and it's also about the I culture. Don't. I don't, Matt. Do you think that um, they can collaborate as well? Do you think that they can pass on knowledge from the senior bankers to the kids? Do you think that they need that five days a week? Yes. So I think... I mean, well, I want to point out that what I think doesn't matter. But that is my me. opinion. That is my opinion, yeah. I quite... Jeffries, I thought, had a slightly more nuanced note. Clearly, they felt... I like the way that they sort of said it was in your lonely silos at home. I mean, anyone who has kids like we do or a dog or anything isn't as lonely as they'd like to be, I think. But there is that element of they're saying come back, but we're not clock-watching you. We're not seeing when you're badging in or badging out. Just treat everyone like adults and decide to be in maybe three days a week on you certain collaborative days. from Jeffries? I mean, they're so, pretty hardcore at Jeffries. I think they might be watching. Yeah, the CEO you. on the phone. Did you really mean Rich that? Rich Handler, CEOs, yeah. are you really not clock watching? <laughs> I mean, he probably has people that do it for him. But I think <laughs> it's about time for Wall Street really to get back to business, to get back to work the way they have been. It might not happen. Well, for all the right MA that isn't happening because foreign costs are rising. Did you see Shanali Bassick sent us a note earlier showing that uh, MA this year is a trillion dollars less than right. MA at the same time last year? We've seen a ton of deals break apart and many, many more not even get done. So Did that's a very UBS, good point. you see UBS, Wellfront? That yes, deal has exactly. just untied itself. We exactly. saw Chobani, the yogurt makers, just put its IPO on ice. I feel that this and is And Novogratz isn't going to buy BitGo. I mean, there's a ton of deals that have fallen apart, but more and more haven't gotten done. Uh, 
to that note, mm. crypto, they're not going back to the office and they seem, seem to be relatively well, protected. Uh, right. Uh, the West Coast, they're not going back to the office because they work from home or because they're getting fired, right? You're seeing big layoffs on uh, the West Coast, big layoffs in tech, and that's starting to spread across to industrial America with a 3M announcement. That's an optimistic way to leave it, isn't it? Yes. Well, have a great weekend. <laughs> Enjoy your Labor Day. You've been we watching. <laughs> we want to do it together. Wall Street Week. This, this is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.